Excuse Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor Jesse David Fox, and each week we have a comedian on to play and then discuss one of their own jokes. This week, our guest is How Did This Get Made host and co-creator of DriveShare, currently airing on Go90, Mr. Paul Shear. Shear's joke is actually the first sketch we've done on Good One, and it comes way at the beginning of his career, well, at least the on-TV portion of it, from his MTV show Human Giant, which Shear co-created with Aziz Ansari, Rob Hubel, and Jason Wallner. The sketch is called The Illusionators. It started as an absurd Chris Angel parody and then transformed to something much more, not unlike a wand into a bouquet of flowers. The sketch is visual, but it's actually quite easy to follow along to. Just know that during the instrumental part, Aziz and Paul are wearing Chris Angel-like outfits running around the desert doing kind of magic-y hand gestures. And the person they're talking to while they're doing the trick is Rob Riggle. Otherwise, just let your brain fill in the rest. It will be a mind explosion. That, that will make more sense once you, once you hear the clip. The following magic is real. If you even attempt to consider replicating the magifications you are about to see, you will die. Excuse me, sir. Could you help us out for a moment? Uh, Pick a card. Any card from the deck. Okay. Memorize the card. Show it to the camera. All right. Now insert it back into the deck. Okay. Anywhere at all. I will now shuffle. Oh, hold on a second. Oh. I'm sorry. Oh. I got a phone call. No problem. All right. Hello? Yes, Barry? Yeah, this is Barry. Looks like someone has a six of diamonds. Wait, wait. Oh, no way! No way! Look at that! Un-f***ing believe How the f*** did you get up there? They were standing right here. They were just standing right in front of me. I answered the, I answered the phone, and they were f***ing they were up there. It's like, and then f***ing knew my name! I knew my name! Unbelievable. Oh, my God. No f***ing way! No They knew my name. And then they knew my phone number? How did they? Then when I tried to call them back, nothing, man, nothing. That's the best magic I've ever seen in my whole life. And I've seen a load of magic. All right, I'm here with the person behind that sketch, Mr. Paul Shear. Thank you for having me. That, of course, is Illusionators, which I co-wrote with Aziz Ansari, uh, Jason Walner, and Rob Hubel uh, when we did that for Human Giant. But actually, the original was written by uh, Aziz and myself. But actually, before we get into it specifically, I want to just back up a little bit for context. How long have you been doing comedy before you kind of started the earliest of the Human Giant stuff? You know, um, I remember when I was in high school, I had taken these classes at Chicago City Limits, which was like an off-Broadway short-form improv place. And short-form improv is kind of like Wayne Brady improv, like, you know. Yeah, those lines anyway. Exactly, right. So um, I started taking classes again at this place, Chicago City Limits, and then got involved with them pretty extensively, was touring around the country. And then, because this new group came to town, the UCB, oh, what's UCB? And the UCB Upright Citizens Brigade. It was like this, people in comedy were like, let's go see them. And I remember the first ASCAT I ever saw 
was maybe like six or eight people in the audience. I believe that like Adam McKay was one of the UCB that was on stage, uh, of course, with Amy Poehler, Ian Roberts, Matt Besser, and, uh, and Matt, Matt Walsh. Walsh. Like, was in that area, that era yeah. where everyone was in New York and kind of they're all from Chicago and they're just kind of doing this Sunday free so this show. So was what, like 98, 99? This was kind of, I feel like this was, oh man, I'm so bad with dates. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, yes. That's, Somewhere yes, in the late 90s. Yes. Late 90s. Yeah. That makes sense. So then you've been, so around then is then where you start doing UCB and then 2005 you do. You start doing the videos with Aziz and uh, Rob Hubel. So, you know, what were you kind of looking for creatively at that point? And then what did this this collaboration offer? Well, the interesting thing about the way Human Giant started, it was kind of an ass backwards way because we didn't start off to be a sketch comedy group. Not in any way. Um, Aziz was hosting this show called Crash Test. And the first week that they did Crash Test, uh, Rob hosted with Aziz. And the second week, he did crash us. I hosted with Aziz. And so we were always trying to figure out a bit that we could use to make the show interesting, make it a little bit larger than a stand-up show. So Rob and Aziz hosted the first week, and it was um, the beginnings and origins of Shutterbugs. Mm-hmm. And then Aziz and I hosted, and we did this bit where we went to the Scientology Center, and we tried to get, like, stress tests, and basically I got, like, the nice treatment, he got the negative treatment. So anyway, we became friends because we did these two shows. And Rob and I were friends because we were performing improv together. And we would go out on the road as the UCB touring company, which was, in my opinion, and I love the UCB and I perform there and they are everything that I owe everything to. The touring shows were always a hit or miss thing because you're doing long form improv for people that are not necessarily on board with it right from the start. Yeah. You know, so you're like, you're doing a college comedy show and it's like, all right, here's our comedy long form improv, which is one suggestion. And then you improvise for about 30 to 40 minutes. So that's, it's not the most, if you're not on board with it, it could be very frustrating. So in one of those shows, we had some time between one or, you know, between setup or whatever. And Aziz and I were sitting back there and we had this, uh, this kind of moment where we, we liked everything the same. Yeah. We both like Lost. We both like 24. And we were both obsessed with Chris Angel. Like he had this show, um, you know, or these specials at that point um, that we were just fascinated by. We loved his energy, the way he spoke. And that was kind of the genesis of how we started doing the Illusionators. It was first um, brought up for a bit that we were doing at Crash Test. And the whole bit in Crash Test was... We were doing, and now I'm thinking about it, we might have used Donald Glover for this bit. <laughs> uh, I think I'm I'm almost positive that we did. So we had Donald Glover in the audience, and Aziz and I are on stage doing this, like, live action thing. And somehow, like, what we did was, like, we had the video piece, and we either pulled him out of the screen and then put mm-hmm. him into the audience, or we either pulled him from the screen and put him in, you know, some dumb, like we were not magicians, Uh, you know, at any given point we were never magicians, but yeah, so that's how it kind of started. And then Aziz and I were doing this movie, uh, the least successful Todd Phillips movie. Todd Phillips obviously does like old school and elf and, uh, hangovers. And we were in school for scoundrels and it was, you know, whatever we were working on that. And we were like, let's make like a movie. Let's make like a, like a 30 minute movie of the illusionators and we'll do all the stuff. And we like went out to Las Vegas and we shot in the desert and parts of that stuff 
is used in the actual show, but a lot of it has never been seen as one full entity. We have like a DVD of like this 30 minute oh, Illusionator special that we made. And then we were passing that around um, as just sort of like a, a thing. And Rob was in it and Aziz and I were in it. And that, along with Shutterbugs, someone was like, well, do a sketch show. We never pitched a sketch show. We never went out with a sketch show. We just kind of had this 30 minute presentation reel of of illusionators like a full story about us uh, and the whole bit in the 30 minute thing which i think we did at certain points co-opt oh i don't know if we ever did it in the show was crossing the street blindfolded crossing a las oh, vegas street blindfolded so aziz and i you know for this 30 minute piece we're in las vegas with no crew uh just jason walner our director writer uh producer amazing everything uh was taping us and we crossed a busy Las Vegas Vegas intersection blindfolded which was crazy like like you know we were doing like you know and we're in these costumes no one knew what to make of us so that was like kind of the uh the genesis of how it kind of began yeah so once that MTV said like okay you guys can do a sketch show did you decide what sort of thing you wanted from this show i know i mean i think i've heard you say in an interview you guys you're all watch sketch comedy so you knew you didn't want to do that but do you guys figure out what specifically you were trying to do or to just like i think it became a very organic way of thinking about doing stuff because uh shutterbugs was started off as this channel 101 which was a competition in new york where you'd make a short film and if people liked it you would get to make another one. It was the basically Dan Harmon thing, right? Yeah, the Dan Harmon thing. So we were the bastard son of that in New York. In LA, it, I believe it was still going on up until like a couple of years ago. Yeah. If not if it's it not might still, still go on. But that's yeah. like most famously that's where the Lonely Island really kind of mate broke through. Yeah, they made the boo. And like we were in New York and we were making these videos too. And that was Jason Wilner and, and Rob and Aziz. And so Shutterbugs was growing, but it wasn't a sketch. It was like this story and the story kept on growing you know so it was like how do you keep on doing it and then illusionators we didn't make a sketch we were making this like 30 minute movie and so i think in the way that i would hate to feel like i'm being like well this is how we did sketch comedy but i feel like the attitude that we had was can we make short films can we make these like little things where the end of the sketch didn't need to be like punchline it just needed to kind of crescendo and um and obviously i feel like uh a lot of shows after that have kind of taken a little bit from that you know which is i think we just happened to be you know uh in that first realm of that Chappelle was doing a little bit of that and we i think pushed it even further and then people kind of pushed it more from us but if you watch our show a lot of the times we come back to the same sketch like two or three times and that was a compromise that we made with MTV because we always wanted to do like, this is going to be our Illusionators episode. This is going to be our other thing. So they, MTV really pushed us to do these bits as ourselves, like Rob Paul and Aziz sketches, which brought like the, you know, time traveling to get Crystal Pepsi and, you know, uh, me getting a time machine to fuck a dinosaur, like those (laughs) like dumb sketches that were just us as ourselves because MTV were like, well, we need to connect to you guys. Like, we need to know what your voice is. And I was yeah. like, well, our voices are these sketches, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that because they're broken up that way, each one doesn't have, like, a clear, you know, what I think when you think of, like, a uh, SNL-type sketch or even, like, a Keen Peel where it's like, this happens and it happens in a more extreme yes. way. It Instead, each one, it's, it's this own sort of 
bit, and then it heightens by each one successively. Yeah, it, it, it's it's like uh, again, I I feel I'm gonna just take off my pressure of feeling an idiot talking about this in a <laughs> okay. highfalutin way, but I'll just say it was like chapterized sketch comedy. Yeah. It was sort of like oh, we're like you know, it was almost it was in many respects like episodes. It was yeah. like we're gonna revisit these characters, and based on what you already know about them, we can kind of continually heighten the story of them. I think the illusionators, um, I don't know what our final sketch was, but I believe like I was catching like a, uh, a missile in my mouth. So that know? was the final of the first season. Okay, yeah. And then the second season had the N-word run. Oh my God, yeah, right. And then the right. last one ever was uh, John Glazer right. committing suicide. <laughs> oh yeah, oh my gosh, yeah. Oh my God, yeah, I forgot all about that. <laughs> the N-word one was a crazy one because that I think was really brought on by... The Michael Richards incident. I feel like that was, there was something at that point that we, you know, and this goes into kind of everything that I, I'm always fascinated by that obsession of, of what goes on in pop culture. And I think what was interesting about Chris Angel in many respects was here's a magician unlike any other magician. You know, he had this very specific voice um, and he was like kind of like a, like like trying to be cool, yes. like, you know, like chains and everything. And believe me, this is, this has created a lifelong obsession with Chris Angel. Uh, I mean, Jason Wallner just went to his like charity event. Aziz and I had a run in with him in Las Vegas. Like we have always kept tabs on Chris Angel, but I think there was something funny about that, that like just energy and attitude of like this punk rock guy who is so not, admitting it's magic like david copperfield's like i'm a magician and you know and then penn and teller obviously are very much you know showing you you know how the sausage is made but not really and that's kind of the fun of them but chris angel was like no i'm really flying no i'm really doing this and it's like and and there was something so dumb And, (laughs) and and i think that's maybe what for me like scratches an itch that i always have which is like when i see something so stupid uh i i want to chase it down and so the n-word one was obviously mike richards performed stand-up comedy got into a debate with an audience member and then started using the n-word and yes. like, and for people who you know up until that point michael richards had kind of faded out of the public consciousness at that point he was kramer from seinfeld but to see him in this crazy way it was like it was it was mind-blowing because it was like whoa but that's like one incident, and that, you know, and and we've had so many of those yeah, since of then, you know. But um, what I thought was really fascinating was the apology tour of it, and you know, he went on Letterman and was like, "I have anger in my heart," and like was gonna go to Africa to do this stuff, like all that sort of stuff. That's where I get obsessed with mm-hmm. these things, and so I think it it sort of like that's. That's the kind of the what I try to start to chase. A little yeah, bit. what was interesting, you know, watching them back is the tone is even though like it's dumb, but the tone to the sketches is not like a takedown of Chris Angel. No, other than maybe the the N word thing, but that didn't even seems sideways. For the most part, you're just like this seems like a fine structure for like how a show should go. Yeah, well, I, I think like you know, for me, I always have this like I bristle a little bit when I hear parody right because yeah. i feel like parody to me feels like and no offense to these guys but like wayne's brothers it's like 50 shades of black you know it's like and and i always feel like what we did on human giant i think successfully and what i was able to do with ntsf too is like i want to i want to live in these worlds mm-hmm. and, and i think like and i like 
I like like well what what can we do with this type of character? Not like he said this, so I'm gonna say that. You yeah. know, it's like, and I feel like so it becomes this kind of like, and I again I hate to use the word, but like more of a satire or or just kind of like like an homage, an homage, yeah. <laughs> like you get to like because. If you don't know Chris Angel, I do believe it stands by itself. And the same thing I felt with NTSF. NTSF wasn't a show that was parodying 24 as much as it was parodying tropes of action films. But all the characters stand on their own two feet. And that was the thing that I, I think we always did with Human Giant, too. It was like, you didn't need to know the reference point, even though, like, there are sketches that we had in there, you know, that we wrote and that other people wrote that were clearly, like, based in something. Like, we had an Exorcist sketch where, like, the devil was kicked out of like a kid and then goes on this really sad journey, like a divorced dad, like being divorced from a child and, you know, the journey of that and kind of coming back and trying to visit the kid after he'd been inside of him and stuff. So like it started off with the exorcist and then we kind of moved out of that. And I feel like that's the way that we always kind of approached everything. It like starts in this world of like Chris Angel. And then we immediately go to like, yeah, the N word. I forgot all about that. one. (laughs) It was like for three different episodes. Yeah. Yeah. He had Michael Williams uh, from The Wire as our black illusionator. That was the whole thing. Like, the illusionators tried to make amends for – they did a magic trick. So just, again, to set it all up, and and, um, the illusionators are out doing street magic. They bump into this guy, Matt Walsh, and they go, write down whatever you want on a piece of paper. He writes down what he wants on a piece of paper – or, you know, writes down a word on a piece of paper. And we go, we're going to make it appear on your chest. And we zap him in the chest, and we ripped up his shirt, and it revealed – just the N-word across his stomach. He's like, I, I didn't think that. I didn't think that. <laughs> Your word was What did you say? Uh, that was your word. That was not my word. word. You don't write that on somebody's body. My word was pizza. Probably stop the, rolling. Put that please stop. Cut the camera, please. And freeze frame, and we go into like a 2020-style piece where this is like kind of corrupted us, and we're now making a comeback and the way we make a comeback is by introducing the world to our black illusionators. So we can't be racist if yeah. we have now a black person performing with us. And that was uh, Michael Williams. What was your next step? We decided to try to find a black member for the illusionators. So we placed an ad on Craigslist. I have that ad with me right here. May I read it? Yes. Please. Are you black? Do you like magic? Hi. We are John Satan and Scott Devil, the Illusionators. A few months ago, we said the N-word on television a bunch of times, and people are really mad at us. We think the only way to apologize is to have a black person become an Illusionator and show them with us palling around together as if we were friends. Response to the ad was minimal, but we did find someone, Chris Barksdale from Baltimore, Maryland. I thought the name Chris Barksdale sounded too white. So I changed his name to the black guy. At that point, the fact that they were illusionators was completely unrelated to what the yeah. bit of the sketch was. And, and and Chris Angel never got embroiled in anything like about <laughs> yeah. racism or anything. Like it just sort of became a funny way of like, you know, taking something so dumb and then making it the serious, you know, like, you know, and I think. It just sort of becomes what you, the stuff that you start to chase down that you think is funny. And then yeah. what happens in a room, too. Speaking of room, so how did, on a, like on a basic level, how did you write together? Were you, and then also did you, were you improvising on set? I think I've heard that you shot a lot and edited a lot. Yeah. So uh, how did, you know, we, like how, how did it come together like that? You know, we had a very interesting process, something that I've never recreated and probably for, for the right reasons in a way. It was so writer friendly 
that I think we hurt every other aspect of our show in the sense that we would lock ourselves in a writer's room. We had a a, a great executive producer, Tom Giannis, who was a part of this too. He was involved in Mr. Show and stuff. We pretty much like close the door and just write nonstop. And so we would create this mound of scripts. And, you know, so it, it would kind of go like this. You'd sit around the room, pitch ideas. And then whatever the room kind of responded to, if it was responded to well, you kind of chase it off and do your own thing. If it wasn't responded to, it kind of just go on an idea board. And then we'd bring in that sketch and then punch it up, punch it up, punch it up. But it would often parts, oftentimes it's tearing it apart and then rebuilding it. So it was a constant rebuilding. So, you know, something with Illusionators might have started off as a simpler concept, but then it, oh, well, why don't we do this thing with Michael Richards? Oh, yeah, why don't we do this? Or, you know, we we saw something and we said, oh, we can put that through this lens. So, yeah. but we had, I believe, like, 115 sketches for our second season and we only aired about 60 of them you know like yeah you know so we were cutting stuff we would cut stuff mid midstream like we did a, a sketch called um ant-man and this is something written by ian roberts and ian roberts who went on to be one of the eps on kim peel and ant-man was as simple as grizzly man it was just a guy who was into ants and i remember doing that sketch and feeling like i i don't think this is funny like i don't like, I don't know what this is. I, I can't do it. And then I gave it to Aziz. I was like, Aziz, reshoot this, my part, and then you shoot it. And then we did that. And and Aziz did it. And then we kind of crapped out in the middle of it. But, yeah, so, like, w- there were some trial and error all the way up until shooting. There was a lot of trial and error in the writer's room. And then there was just stuff that people have not seen. I remember one of the final conversations we ever had about Human Giant as a, as a group was what sketches are we going to pull up from, like, basically death. I was like, what do we got that we haven't aired yet? But I think the reason why the show went in so many different directions too, was we were able to do something that I don't think we'd be able to do now, which is bring in all these ringers, like these amazing writers, you know, just amazing people. And what we were able to do was we didn't have a writer's room per se. Like we had our core guys, which was the five of us, Tom Janice being one of those. Then we also had uh, John Glazer who was around very much. And then uh, Eric Appel, who has gone off to be a great uh, director. But that was kind of our our core room. And then we bring in people like Andy Blitz for a week. And we bring in Pat Oswald for a day. And we would bring in, you know, Paul Rust and people that we just thought were funny. It was like, can you come in and just, like, pitch some ideas? And the benefit to them was, if we liked it, you'll write it that day, but then you'll go home. And you'll never have to, like, be like, you know, it wasn't like you were on a staff. So people could kind of come in. And pitch a crazy idea, write a crazy idea, and then um, go off and, you know, and, and that was it. So we had this amazing ability to do that. I think the way the WGA works, it's <laughs> not really the way we're supposed to do things. But, um, yeah, we had some great people. That is uh, really great. I was thinking from watching all of, all of the sketches together, so other than the N-Word one, which is yeah. a, its own thing, that magic, by the nature of how magic works, really lends itself to comedy. Because well, essentially it's the yeah. same. And I was yeah. wondering if you realized, they're like, oh, I guess it's like literally the exact same thing of how a joke would work. Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, you know, it's funny that you, yeah, that, that I don't think we ever really thought of it like that. I think we were, yeah, I, I think I'm, I am a big magic person. I love magic. Jason Wolner loves magic. So I think uh, any way to kind of embrace that uh, was also like a part of like a wish fulfillment. You know, I think, yeah. you know, even going to, you know, NTSF and stuff like that. It's like, it's always like, oh, I'd like to do that. Let me like, can I do the thing that's funny to me? But what, you know, to your point, 
the thing that started to trip us up at the end was we were always like, well, let's do more illusionaires. How do we do more illusionaires? And we were like, what do we do? Do we burn ourselves alive? Do we do this? And we 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 were getting so caught up on the joke at certain points because it was yeah. like, how do we top a joke? They caught a missile in our mouth. We then like appeared out of someone's body. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. like one of us got killed. You know, like it was those things that started to really, I remember feeling just frustrated. Like, ah, oh, what, what is the thing that we haven't done yet? And we had a bunch of ideas. I remember something about like, that we barbecued our bodies or something. <laughs> I, I, like, but, but the magic actually became the thing that kind of caught us. And I think in a weird way, the Michael Richards of it all was able to let us go in a different direction, kind of freed us from doing the expected of yeah. them, you know, because, you know, where shutterbugs could kind of grow out and do different things and, you know, become like little 9-11 and, and stuff like that and kid attentory, you could kind of find other ways to do terrible things with kids. Magic always was rooted in one thing, which is like, what's the setup of this ridiculous thing? And yeah. because it's ultimately fake, how do we pay off? How do we make it funny? Because it's like, well, I could catch a missile in my mouth or I could cross the street or I could do this. Like, what's different about these things that, you know, that make it better? Yeah. What is enough for it to not just seem like a a magic trick, essentially? Yeah. had to be like, and it had to feel like enough of an exaggeration to still feel like comedy. Yeah. I feel like we had to find a story in it that was more interesting to us. And I think that was the the thing that really started to really like capture our minds with these characters. And again, it's probably now looking back on it going, Oh, that's probably why that worked more than the other ones. But I think that we like these characters and seeing their humanity or seeing them like get hurt. Like we like the backstory more than the trick. So if we could create a compelling backstory then the trick wasn't as important because the tricks were always tricks. They were not real. (laughs) You know, they were not, they were never even trying to be real. You mentioned that you, you've, I guess in Las Vegas you met Chris Angel or you yes. didn't pet. So did he, was he aware of the sketches? Do you know if he ever... You know, he's aware of sketches. I would imagine the way, like, Donald Trump is aware of, like, certain bills. Like, I've heard of that. Yeah, I think I know. Like, like so we were out doing something. Aziz and I were in this, like, club in Vegas because, you know, we love that scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and we got, like, a, a tap on our shoulders from this very big guy who's like, you know, neck muscle was like bigger than my thigh. And he was like, uh, you know, Chris Angel wants to see you guys. And we're like, what? And they're like, yeah, like, all right. So they took us upstairs to where Chris Angel was like above the club in like these little banquettes. And there's a lot of like VIPs up there, bottle service, whatever. And we get brought over to him. And he, you know, and he uh, looks at us and he's like, you know, it goes, nice to meet you guys. You know, imitation is the highest form of flattery. Yeah. And we're like, cool, cool. I, like, and then, and, and then he just, and we left and we we're like, what just happened there? Like, what, what, what do we just experience? Cause it wasn't like, he didn't say I liked it. He didn't say he didn't like it. He didn't ask us to stay. It was kind of like, I see you, you see me, now go. He was surrounded by like three women, and we found out later he was getting a divorce at the time. So that was <laughs> maybe like, that's what. Yeah, it was. we were like, yeah, he didn't need us to be tagging along. Because you're like, how, how did he know that you were there? Yeah, how did he communicate? You, because you, you I know have nothing. a feeling like what happened was whatever his security team was spotted us because mm-hmm. they probably were like, hey, you see this thing? Yeah, you know, and then was probably like, yo, Chris, those are the guys who make fun of you. 
And he's like, bring them here. Bring them in. I want to talk to them. You know, and then we get, like, shuffled up to his, like, little perch where he is at that point uh, a Vegas kind of god, you know. And, like, and, 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 and look, rightly so. Now he's doing – I remember I saw his Cirque du Soleil show. He was a little bit uh, lackluster, to say the least. So it's, it's interesting that your, your interest in him has not weaned. Oh, it. not at all. I almost went to Vegas with Jason for a charity event uh, that Chris Angel hosted uh, because it was like, I was like, yeah, I need to see this thing. Unfortunately, I had a baby about a <laughs> week before. I a and I and I and I was like, and I really like sat up at night while my wife was asleep and our baby was still up. And I was like, how can I say, can I go to Vegas for one night? Maybe I go leave on Wednesday. I come back. I could come back on the same night. I was like trying, trying to balance it out. And I, and thankfully uh, I did not say that. I, I don't consider myself the best husband or the best <laughs> father, but I, I am a better father for not asking for that. <laughs> we will be right back with more Paul Shear after this word from our sponsor. Hi again for the Mitch Show Crashing Recap. Today we'll talk about episode four. If you haven't watched the episode yet, spoiler alert and such. This episode is titled and is about barking. What's barking, you ask? Stemming from the proto-dramatic Birkin and uh, old nurse Birkja, Barking is in this context stems from carnival barkers, who, based on the name, I assume, convince people to come to the carnival by giving them a dog. In this context, it means giving people a flyer for a comedy club. It, uh, you put your name on the back, and if five people with your name on it come, you get to do stand-up comedy. In doing so, Pete meets other barking comics, new friends, new enemies, new and different colleagues who are just doing the same thing at the same time. Pete's not sure, but he's going to find out by having an earnestness contest against himself. He loses, as the comedians don't let him in their eating meat on the street circle. Eat meat, street Pete. Those words rhyme. Anyway, filled with meat, Pete is ready to get rejected for four hours. Then he has to pee and ends up paying nine of his ten dollars for a Coke just to use a bar's bathroom. If that isn't bad enough, one buck Pete then returns to his corner, but there's a real pushy twerp there slash comedian, and he won't move. Scared, he walks around aimlessly, giving flyers to a group of Korean businessmen and then a drug dealer, who tells Pete to claim what's his, his corner. The problem is the pushy twerp is still at the corner and he has this like baton thing. But the problem for the pushy twerp is he's overzealous with it and he swings and breaks the car window of a street tough. So the street tough gives chase, but then the street tough gets hit by a car. Eventually, Marina Franklin, who's a stand-up comedian in her own right, tells Pete, we all did this. And Pete's like, ooh, I'm a wee. And then he starts barking like he's never barked before. He does get five people and gets to do comedy, but there's no audience left. But guess what? The Korean businessmen show up full of jazz and interest in American comedy. People laugh at Pete's jokes for the first time in the series, and then they laugh at all the Barker's jokes. Because he brought the crowd, the Barker's indulge Pete's earnestness as they go to another show. So he hasn't made friends yet after his divorce, but he has made acquaintances. And as Pete has proven, you can crash on an acquaintance couch if you're sad enough. Find out if Pete continues barking for stage time or if he tries meowing. Next week on Crashing, Sunday nights at 10.30 on HBO. All right, we're back with Paul Shear. So kind of moving forward, or you know, in retrospect, do you think of Human Giant as more of kind of the end of the kind of start of your career in comedy or kind of the beginning of the like next phase where you're not really starting out anymore? You know, it's interesting because I started off in New York 
you know, doing UCB, doing that about five nights a week, all these improv shows, crazy improv shows. I did a show one time where it was like robot television, which was like TV for robots by robots. And I remember leaving my own birthday dinner. My parents came into the city, got me a big dinner. Like, mom, dad, I got to go. I got to do my robot TV show. Like, and I was so into that performing scene. And I think the first time that I felt like I had gotten something was to be on the show called Best Week Ever. And for yeah. whatever reason, at that point in time, it was like VH1 was known for these talking head shows, but like Best Week Ever just kind of popped out from the bunch. It was a weekly show, kind of felt like Talk Soup. It had great people on it, like Paul F. Tompkins and John Mulaney, Nick Kroll and myself, and even Aziz did it for a little while. And I think Rob Hubel was on it. Like Jessica St. Clair. Jessica St. Clair, yeah. yeah. We, it was an amazing group of like people from UCB being funny. And that was to me the first time I felt like, oh, wow, like I was making money. I was making $500 an episode. And I was so psyched. $500. I was like, this is amazing. And, um, you know, I could pay my rent if I did it twice a month, you know, and it was like, and people would recognize us from that. And I think that the, the cachet that that had helped us get human giant in a weird way. So it was a fun transition to go from doing someone else's show to then doing your own show. And then working with Aziz and Rob and Jason, who I think we all share a similar sensibility, but we're all very different types of writers and performers. So it was a great kind of like mixing of of that. And I think that kind of gave me the bug to be like, why do I want to work on someone else's thing when I can be really heavily involved in my own thing? So, you know, when you picked Illusionators, I found it very interesting because I, I think now since, especially when you started doing your own thing, you have done a lot of these things in the pop culture parody homage yeah. area. Also, your your podcast is focused on pop culture in that way. You know, what is it about pop culture as a source of material that drives you beyond just your interest to it and also that kind of works with whatever your voice is? I think that you know, there's all different types of comedians, right? Like, you know, and there are you know, obviously political comedians. There are people that are absurdist comedians. There are people like, you know, Seinfeld, very reality-based now. Yeah. Even like what Louis is doing now is very personal-based. To me, there is this thing about pop culture. I am, I am a fan of all of this stuff, you know? So I think I come at it from that point of view. So a lot of the times when I talked about doing NTSF, I'm like, well, NTSF came out of the idea that I love these shows. I'm a fan of these shows. I want to be in these shows. I can't be in those shows. You know, I'm not going to, they're not going to cast me as the Corey Hawkins part in 24. So how can I create something for myself and embrace it? But I also feel like there is a a seriousness that some pop culture takes of itself. And a great example is that, uh, you know, a uh, a little while ago with the whole uh, Oscar thing. When the Oscar thing and the wrong envelope was given out, people were freaking out. And online, everyone was, you know, well, well what happened? I'm going to get to the bottom of it. And it's like that seriousness. Like, I was enjoying watching that so much as it just expanded on Twitter because I was like, who cares? Like, it's like, this is not a mystery that's, like, worth solving. But, like, those are the things when people, like, get too high on their horse and or or things are treated with too much gravitas that I feel like I'm like, oh, this is kind of amazing. Uh, so I think being a fan of it, I love it. I'm into it. I want to be in those worlds. And then also 
I want to take the piss out of it too because I also know it's like it's stupid. It's yeah. like it means nothing. <laughs> yeah. Like you know, it's just, it, it, we're all doing the same bullshit. You know, I'm a fan of it, and I I'm inspired by it. I think it it does like to a certain extent inspire me, and it, it gives me thoughts that you know help me kind of I don't know just it, grab grab yeah. onto. And I think also a lot of the times you find you know Brooklyn Nine Nine is just basically. It's a funny cop show, but the funny cop show is based out of the fact that there are serious cop shows, you know? So it's like, and it's all the execution in which you do stuff, but it's, it is, it's like everything kind of was created. Like the funny doctor show was based on the funny, you know, it's like, yeah. so it, it's just, oh, we could do that. We could show the funnier side of this thing. Like we could show the funnier side of fighting terrorism. <laughs> for, for all these projects, you know, it, as, as a fan of yours, I know you have, you know, there's these things you're interested in and there's these things you're obsessed over. What kind of moves it from a thing that you like to a thing that you want to build a show around? I think that's the trickiest thing is trying to figure out what has legs. And I feel like um, I've done recently a little bit more one-offs, you know, where I, you know, I felt like with NTSF, the idea of NTSF originated by me wanting to do essentially a faulty towers-esque show in a safe house i was really obsessed with this idea i was like i love the idea of a safe house and i think that that's like a a funny world i hadn't quite seen and then it just kind of slowly morphed into ntsf and and ntsf even the title of ntsf was kind of we fell back into it because when we were pitching it, I said, oh, yeah, it's called NTSF SD. And then Mike Lazo, the head of Adult Swim, when he was hearing the pitch, he's like, oh, SUV. Like, like he's like, like he assumed that we had to do with the car. And I was like, yeah, great. That's our <laughs> sure, title. Sure. You know, and and um, and so it just sort of became like, well, Faulty Towers is a little bit small. How can we widen out the world? How can we like do more with it? How do we feel like it's not repetitive? And to me, it always comes down to are these characters going to be fun? Are there ideas that are past like the first couple of episodes. Now I just did a recent thing uh, that went to Sundance. We did this pilot that went to Sundance and it was a very different thing for me to do. It was, it was just about a couple uh, that have two kids. And that was something that I relate to because that's the world that I'm in now. And I see like a bunch of, I see a bunch of like a runway for that, you know, like, and at the time of NTSF, there was 24, there's CSI, there's NCIS, there's CSI Miami, there's, you know, there's all these cop shows. So I saw a lot of runway to be like, yeah. and all my action movies and all. So it's like, do you see something past the initial core idea where our, our Shirio Paul was like, I don't, I, that's one thing. I was like, I think this is funny. It will live here. Somebody basically said to me, hey, we'll give you money to do something you can't do anywhere else. I was like, this will be that. Right. And I think there are, you know, I did a, I did a thing for Adult Swim that I, one of the things I really loved, it was like a thing with Ray, Ray Wise from Twin Peaks where it's your TV uh, screen turned into a hotel TV. And it was that basically was Jenison. Like I, I woke up in the middle of the night. I was in Las Vegas. Again, this podcast makes it sound like I'm in Vegas a lot. <laughs> But I turned on the TV at the Wynn Hotel and there was Steve Wynn and he's walking around giving you like a 20 minute video introduction to his hotel that you're staying at. And I like wrote down all these notes on my bedside table. And the next morning I woke up and I called my class. I was like, I want to do hotel TV. He's like, great. And then like, yeah. so I know, like, I think it's like balancing what has yeah. a short shelf life, what has a longer shelf life. And you could even go into the league, which I did get to write for. But the league is also like kind of based on this you know, this passion, you know, it's like people are passionate about fantasy football. How can you use 
that like competition that's inherent there and filter it through normal yeah. people's lives because that show really is just about people in their 30s you know single divorced married whatever just living their lives and they have, there's this one thing over them that kind of yeah. connects them that moves the story forward. yeah though this isn't the case i guess with Oshirio and shirl but yeah. um but especially with illusionators and tsf and, and uh filthy preppy teens oh yeah forget about that <laughs> um Comedy about culture, kind of like all topical comedy in general, faces kind of a double-edged sword of, like, it's exciting because it's happening right now, but right. also you have the danger of it being dated, or maybe you don't care about it being dated. Well, that, that, that to me is why you have to go back to, like, character and story, because I feel like if you were to watch, like, not another teen movie or epic movie, and, and no offense to these films, but they are very much time-stamped. They are. You saw this in the moment, and that. And this is a. That's a reference to Borat. That's a reference to the movie that just came out four months ago. Whatever it is, that's what you're seeing. What we did, and what I try to do, is make it evergreen. Like filthy preppy teens um, was this show that we did on full screen. We're going to be doing more of those, but they like that basically is just. It has a title that is reminiscent of parody, but it is doing a comedy version of like Pretty Little Liars or Gossip Girl or all these shows. It's just heavy drama, you know, crazy ideas like they're killing their parents. And instead of a guy becoming a teen wolf, he's becoming a teen leprechaun. But those are ideas that are more universal. They're not like they're not going to be they're not like there's no sell by yeah. sell by date on it. So that and even with NTSF. Now that's on Hulu, people have been finding that more and more. And they're like, oh my God, that's so funny. Like it's because it's not like, well, you had to see this one thing. It's yeah. more archetypes than it is specific yeah. references. And I think that's going back to what I was saying. Like the thing that always gets me about parody is like, I'm not going A to B. I'm yeah. like, you know, I'm I'm trying to be like, I'm inspired by like, all right, I like Con Air. Con Air is funny to me. How can we do that on NTSF? Well, what if it was Comic-Con Air, which is a pun in a title, but that's about it. Like Then it's sort of like, all right, well, now we're just going to get a bunch of the deadliest villains from Comic-Con being transported. You know, it's like, great. So that And then it becomes its own thing. It's not following any beat by beat. It's not, it's not the same plot at all. But it's just sort of like, there's the inspiration point. Here's how we make it different. And here's how we kind of make it more general. Yeah. Um, I've been in how did, how did this get made audiences. What is it like for you to so intimately have people with a similar kind of worldview of pop culture, like, as your audience to kind of cultivate this world around you? It's one of the most fun experiences doing that show. And it, and we have found, oddly enough, like, our listeners to that show are really diverse. Like, it is a comedy show, but it kind of transcends being just a comedy show in the sense that – um people will tell me like, oh, my parents listen to How Did This Get Made? And the, it's the only podcast that they listen to. And and because it's it's a, and maybe this goes back to everything. You're making me think of my own stuff in a way that I don't ever think of it. <laughs> but, but it's like, it's a communal experience. We can all, every single person has seen a movie and been let down by it on some level, mm-hmm. right? You know, or, you know, not all movies, but you go, oh, what did I just watch? And <laughs> yeah. and the whole premise of that that show, the podcast, really stemmed out of the idea of when you see something like that and you're with friends, you're like, what, that, what, what about this? And what about that? And what, blah, blah, blah. You know, so that conversation, and that conversation is kind of a universal conversation. Yeah. So it's so fun to me to see our audiences who get 
so into the show and they're bringing notes and they're there. And and what I love about the show is it be- has become a communal experience, whether it's a mini episode where people are writing in their theories and facts, whether it's the live show where people are coming with their Q&As. We, you know, it's it's a show where anyone can participate because everyone can share yeah. the same idea of it. You know, it's like it's um, it's even unlike sports because it's like there it's it's just like wait I don't get why this happened. It's a logic thing. It's this you know. So yeah, there's something really fun about that. So maybe in a weird way, like as we talk about all this sort of stuff, it is like finding the entry point, which is a shared experience, and then. Going well, well now, how can we subvert that expectation? How can we do something a little bit different from that so it doesn't feel like it is just going like uh, like what was it on South Park? The Remember Berries or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, it's just not. And I say like that's, and I think sometimes the stuff that that I do could get put in that category, but it's not that because we don't we don't ever try to be like reference. It's not yeah. reference comedy. It's basically going here's something we all we all understand. Yeah. Now let's go forward from yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's creating a context for these things or a, right. a world that they all exist in. And I think what is different, especially about how this get made, you know, you're not just tapping into like this movie was bad or stupid. Right. You're tapping into a feeling people have after they watch movies. Yes. Like, why is this the choice they make? <laughs> <laughs> so that sound means it's time for our final segment, the laughing round. Yes. So it's like a lightning round because it's a comedy. Yes, I get, it's, yeah, it's I get it. Yeah. It's lightning round. <laughs> Do you have a favorite street joke? Oh, my gosh. You know, this is – can I break the lightning around for one second and sure. tell you the story? So we're doing Human Giant, and we get taken out to a fancy restaurant by the head of MTV. It was very exciting. And uh, Polly Shore sits down with us. And Polly Shore obviously has a history at MTV. And we're having a good time with Polly Shore. And, uh, you know, and, and he's being crazy. And then all of a sudden – who approaches the table, but Russell Crowe. And this is human giant, Polly Shore, and now Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe's first move in sitting down is to be, Polly, remember, you remember me? And Polly's like, no, I don't remember you, which is the craziest thing. Russell Crowe's a huge celebrity at this point. And so Russell Crowe does this thing, the nicest guy, by the way. Uh, he's like, can we take the lights out here? So they bring a, a waiter over. A waiter comes, unscrews the light bulbs above the table. So now we're kind of in dark. We're with Russell Crowe. And he's like, well, you guys are going to hang out with us now. Like, let's hang out. So we go over. Polly Shore leaves. Head of MTV leaves. And we are now sitting with Russell Crowe. And uh, Russell Crowe is like, well, you guys are comedians. Tell us jokes. <laughs> so we have Aziz, me, Rob, and Wolner. And we're like, um, what do you mean? What do you mean? And he's like, yeah, what, what, like, that's like a, a street joke. Tell us a street joke. And we are in stu- like, we're like, ah, and, and Aziz at this point, you know, is already on his way to becoming a great, you know, stand up. And, you know, yeah. he, I don't know what to say. And I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, none of, we are caught with our pants down. And so from here on in, I started to keep a, like, uh, a thing of jokes, like, in my pocket. Cause I was like, if I ever get, like in a Russell Crowe scenario, <laughs> I want to be able to have like these jokes, but we, we let him down. And he was so upset with us. Like he was like, what? You don't have jokes? And we're like, well, I mean, I don't like, we don't have them like ready to go. And he was like, and he goes, I'll tell you a joke. And he said like, why do we, you know, why do we uh, do the, the, the sign of the father, which is like, you know, you cross, you go for a head, you cross the chest. And it goes, because um, 
And it was like this joke about like a bee and some honey. And he was like, that's why. And we're like, I don't even remember. And he's like, you know, because he's trying to swat away the bees. We're like, okay. He's like, all right, now your turn again. And we're like, well, we didn't even go the first time. So I am always caught with my pants down for street jokes. I never have them. I write them down sometimes. And I, then I'm like, I'm going to remember this one. And I always forget them. I enjoy them. I can't remember them. Uh, that's a that's a a good sideways way of not answering the question. Uh, but still answering the question. You did a you recently did a movie with Nicolas Cage. Yes. Uh, do you remember what he smells like? You know, uh, very good. You know, you would think that Nicolas Cage would give off an odor, a perspiration of anything. Um, I will say that, like all great people, he didn't have an odor that was recognizable. He just was one of the team. And and that was a guy, and he had a crazy beard and a crazy long hairdo at that point. So I have to say, for a guy, you know, sometimes when you're rocking a crazy beard and a ponytail, there's smells that are just coming. You know, hair holds in something. <laughs> yeah. uh, his smell was, uh, I would say, not didn't bother anybody. Yeah, it was part good. of the team. Yeah. Uh, if you could improvise with anyone, living or dead, who would it be? Mm, living or dead, I feel like uh, I would love to do a scene with Nichols and May. I feel like Nichols and May did this amazing, you know, they were fantastic. And just to kind of do that slow, nice improv, I would be pretty, uh, pretty awesome. All right. So uh, last one. These are great questions. Oh, thank you. Uh, not sure if you've done this before, but off the top of your head, first thought, best thought, rank the seven Fast and the Furious movies. So if I'm to rank them, I'm going to take five goes first. Five is to me, they figured out the formula. Mm-hmm. Like We are in to this. Then I'm going to go six. Then I'm going to go seven. And then I'm going to go number one, because I think number one is a uh, super solid, great film. Then I'm going to go uh, to Fast and Furious 4, which was a serious one about like drug cartels. It's not great, but it was something. And then I'm going to go Fast Too Furious, the one with Tyrese. And then I'm going to put Tokyo Drift on the end. Now, people have said that well the reason I put Tokyo Drift in the end is because I have not seen it. So uh, I but I, I people have asked me to to watch it for the podcast. We will at one point get to it. But I feel like I am more of the the core franchise. Yeah. yeah. So five, six and seven are really great. My worry about eight well, I think eight is gonna get back to this like sweet spot between five and six, which is like there are some stakes. It's still gonna be fun, but there's a little bit more of a story. Cause essentially Seven, they were superheroes. Like yeah. <laughs> that was essentially an Avengers movie yeah. with cars. They were flying, they were jumping around, and I like it. I'm all on board. Believe me, this is a a a, a, a small level of uh, you know high, you know which one's better. But I feel like they they were a little bit yeah. too aware uh, of what they were doing. And that was this week's episode of Good One. DriveShare, Paul's new series, is available on Go90. And How Did This Get Made is available wherever podcasts are podcastable. Follow him at Paul Shear. Jordan Bell is our producer. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on iTunes. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Have a good one. Next week on Good One, our guest is Tignataro. I possibly would be a lot better at stand-up if I actually sat down and wrote things out, but I think it's the um, the side of me that didn't like school. Join us every Monday for a new episode of Good One.